Let's pray. Father, our confidence is in Christ. It is he who is in us. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we now operate in faith to exalt his glory. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. If you took a carrot and you cut that carrot in half, you know, like the short way, like, you know, if you like snapped a carrot in half. So if you took that carrot and you cut it in half and you looked at the inside of that carrot, what does it look like? It looks like the iris of your eyeball. Interesting, huh? What are carrots good for? Your eyes. Isn't that an interesting little thing? It doesn't just stop there. A walnut looks like a brain. I mean, it literally looks just like a brain. It's even got all those bumpy surfaces and everything. It even has two halves, right? Like a it's got the, the, the little break in the middle, just like your brain has two halves, right? And what is a walnut full of? Omega-3 fats, which are excellent for increasing your brain health. Looks like a brain, it's good for your brain. Carrot looks like your eyes, it's good for your eyes. Tomatoes, what do tomatoes look like? A heart. Okay? And a lot of them are as big as your heart, smaller than your heart, bigger than your heart, but they're red, they look like a heart. Guess what tomatoes are good for? <laughs> your heart. Celery, this one blew my mind because I didn't know this. Celery, what, is a, what, is a celery, what does a celery stalk look like? A bone, right? And not just any bone, it looks like a long bone. And celery has nutrients in it that are specifically beneficial to your large bones, like your femur and your humerus. Avocados. Avocados look like ovaries. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, parents, you have some explaining to do on the way home. <laughs> and what are avocados good for? Fertility. And let's just, I'll let you guess, how long does it take an avocado to ripen? Nine months. Okay, what's the point of all this? My point is that God knows what he's doing. He knows your body. He knows what your body needs, so much so that he even gave us indicators in food to tell you what this is good for long before science could do the math and the chemistry that's involved to figure out how these, nutrient, how these things really are nutrient for our bodies. Okay, so God knows what your body needs. Now, Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is called his body. So if he knows what our human bodies need and designed food in such a way as to indicate how that food is good for us, then how much more does he know what his own body needs or what his church needs? 
So the question that we have to answer is, what does the body of Christ need? And we will answer that at the end. Once we understand the relationship between the head and the body. So verse 18, Paul writes, now now keep in mind before I read this, this entire text, verses 15 through 20, is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And with every verse, Paul is building a house, and that house is called the supremacy of Christ. And each verse reveals a different characteristic or different aspect of the nature of Christ. And each one of those characteristics and each aspect of his nature is a pillar that stands underneath that home to uphold his supremacy. So Paul is building this supremacy of Christ. And one of the aspects of his supremacy is here in verse 18. Paul writes, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, this word head signifies authority. So the pillar that Paul is building now that, 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 that creates the supremacy of Christ over all things is his supremacy in the church or ultimately his authority, his authority worldwide, his authority universally. And I say universally meaning beyond, into the universe into outer space. So there's no extent of the world in which he's not supreme over or that he doesn't have authority over. But Paul is writing to the church, a group of believers, and he's speaking directly to them about their relationship with this supreme God and that they are the body and he is the head. So Paul's pillar to uphold the supremacy of Christ in this verse is the authority of Jesus in the church. Now, to understand the headship of Christ, so just keep in mind, as I say things like he's the head or the headship of Christ, that ultimately it's always referring to his authority, his leadership. To understand that headship of Christ, we must also understand the body upon which that head rests. So the body is the church. I think most of us know that. I mean, if you've been in church long enough, you've heard preachers, pastors, songs, people use the phrase or the metaphor of the body or the body of Christ. I don't think that's novel to most of you. But what's interesting is that in the Bible, we have many metaphors for God's people. Uh, we're called or, or the vineyard, we're called the family, kingdom, flock, building, called the bride. So all of those metaphors portray God's people in both the Old Testament and or the New Testament. But the metaphor of God's people being the body is only in the New Testament. That's never portrayed in the Old Testament. We're never, the Old Testament saints are never called the body of God or the body of Christ because the body is the church and the church is only in the New Testament. And the Old Testament people of God were never called the body for good reason because they didn't have a head. Now, they had God, and at times they had a theocratic government. A, the a theocratic government is a government where uh, God is their king, where God is their ruler, and there's no human leader. That's what happened with Israel. When you look at 1 Samuel, God was their ruler, and the Israelites said, hey, we want to be like other nations. We want a king who can fight our battles. And God was like, hello, you have that. 
Like, no, 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 we want to be like everyone else. We want someone to tell us what to do. And God warned them, you sure you want to do that? Because not, you're not going to like it, I promise you. I'm a way better king than the guy that I'll pick for you. And they're like, no, no, we're pretty sure we don't want you as our king. We want them. We want someone else. And then God ordains Saul to be their king. Saul, not a very good guy. Sometimes good, usually not. And that leads to David, which then eventually leads to Christ. So God ordained that to lead to our Savior so that the church could have, so that, the, so that God would create his people, the church, and that the church would have a king. But ultimately, the Old Testament people never had a, a true head. They had God and they didn't want him. And so the reason they're never called the body in the Old Testament is because it all leads to Christ eventually. Because there's this promise that there will be one day for God's people a leader, a head, a shepherd, an authority to rule over my people. Not just on earth, not just temporally, but forever. And he will be a king and he will be a shepherd and he will be a lamb and a lion and he will rule not just on earth, not just for a thousand years, but for eternity. And so this word body is reserved all throughout time until Christ. So that the body has a head. And once the head is established, God says, and now you're the body. And the metaphor is beautiful because it perfectly captures the way in which Jesus rules. It reveals his supremacy over the church. If Jesus is supreme over all things, then his supremacy should never be in question to those who believe in him and love him and follow him. The rest of the world is subject to his sovereign rule. Even if they don't know it, they're still subject to it. They might not obey him, they might not like him, they might not submit to him willingly, but they are still subject to his absolute sovereignty over all things. As we learned last week in verse 17, he holds all things together. Unbelievers and believers alike, only reason we don't burst into a trillion particles and disintegrate into the air is because he maintains us. He holds us together. So everything is in submission ultimately to Christ, whether it follows him or not. But for the church, we do know him and we do know this truth. And because it is because he's given us eyes to see the truth and therefore we love our submissive role under the headship of Christ. That is the distinctive difference between us and the world. We love the sovereign and supreme ruler over all of creation. And by loving him, we become a part of his body. So now think about how the human body works. And, and this reveals how cool the metaphor really is. There's no part of your body that can purposefully function without the mind's authority to cause it to do what it does. Your hand picks up a coffee mug and brings it to your lips for a sip because your mind has determined for it to do so. So unless there's a physical disability that disrupts this process, the hand cannot in any way reject the authority of the mind or of your head. Because if your hand rejects picking up that coffee mug, 
then it was not your hand that was rejecting it. It was your mind that made that decision. So the beauty of this head and body metaphor is that it perfectly captures the authority of Jesus over his people. We cannot do anything without his authoritative directives. Your body cannot act without the mind. I would even suggest that even in disability, the body acts according to the mind. I, on social media, and I was watching this, there's this young girl, young woman really, who has Tourette's, and her Tourette's, just like, she has fun with it, but she like does these you know, weird outbursts of things. Um, and one of them is really funny. She'd just be like, let's go! And she just, every time, and, and, and she has all these little, you know, like funny little quirks that she has with her Tourette's and she plays into it. But one of the things she does that's really hard to watch is she punches herself. Now, she has a disability and that disability is not something she wants, I would assume. And I assume that in her mind, in her will, she doesn't want to punch herself. Yet, the disability is still an operation of the mind telling the hand what to do. It's against her will, but the mind is still causing the hand to function a particular way, even when it's harmful to the body. So what I'm suggesting is that even in disability, the body only operates or fires. Last week we talked about how atoms fire and how Jesus is sovereign over all the atoms. And so every decision, every thought, every process, every function is a product of Jesus sovereignly moving every atom through your brain from synapse to synapse to cause and create every word and every thought and every activity. And so even in disability, your hands are just behaving according to the firing of those neurons which Christ is sovereign over. So, this relationship between the head and the body is beautiful because you can't function, your body can't function without the mind's directives. The body cannot act without the mind. Your legs don't just send you off running into the forest to get lost and your brain is wondering what's going on or what you're doing. Your legs will only take you where your mind determines there to take you, meaning the body can only operate according to the will of the mind. The body itself has no freedom in its own will. Your hands, your arms, your legs, everything does not have its own will. All of it, whether you're making a conscious decision to act with your body or an unconscious or subconscious decision in acting with your body, it is still your mind that is controlling the function of your body. How often, when you're walking, do you think about every movement and every firing of every muscle fiber that is getting your legs to walk? We don't walk around going, left leg, right leg, right? Like, we don't think about it. We just do it. We're not consciously aware. When I preach, I'm not consciously aware of how I'm using my, sometimes I am, aware of how we use our hands or, or how, how our legs are moving as we walk. And even when you're talking, Think about the speed at which your brain processes a thought and idea, turns it into speech, sends it to the speech center, comes out of your mouth. In a way that is articulate enough for other people to understand what you're saying. All of this is a process of the mind creating actions in the body, whether consciously deciding. So when someone like takes t careful time to think about exactly what they want to say, that conscious decision is only acted out by the mouth 
because the mind has decided so, or when we do things subconsciously, it's just a product of our mind operating. Your body cannot function without the mind's will. So again, we have this dilemma about our will and whether it's free or not. Because if the metaphor is true, and it is true, and the metaphor is accurate because it's in the Bible, and God gave us this metaphor for our relationship to the head, Christ. If this metaphor is true, if we want to argue for our free will, we cannot argue against the reality that there is no part of the body that operates freely from the will of your mind. And the relationship that that reveals is our submission to Christ. Our role in acting out as the body, the will of the mind. So if the body's operation under the authority of the head or the mind is God's ordained metaphor for our relationship with Jesus, then it also follows that our will is to do that of our master. Not under our free will. And when I say free, I mean not under a will that says, I don't want to do your will, I want to do my will. So not free in the sense that I don't want, we as the body should not want to operate free from the mind. Because apart from the mind, the body can't function. Or the body's disabled. And so our desire is to fulfill the will of the mind. And that is our role in the body, to do the will of Christ. Because that's what a body does. That's the only way a body works. So why does the body, the church, operate only under the will of the head? What is the purpose of that? You could conclude many purposes here. But one stands out as abundantly important and clear. Unity. As you use your body day to day, it is simply acting out the will of your mind and the desires of your mind and the purposes of your mind. We've established that. And your head is ultimately the decision maker as well as the cause of all your body parts working together toward those decisions. So the body acts in unity to achieve the things your mind decides. Your mind decides it wants to sit down and read. So it tells your legs to take you to the chair and uses your arms to lift the book and then uses your eyes to read the words and causes your brain to process those words into thoughts and understand the entire concept of all the things that you're reading. Your entire body works as a unit in unity to achieve the desires of the mind. This is true even in our sin. If our mind decides it wants to sin, the body operates toward that sinful activity to, to achieve those sinful desires of the mind. So we can pervert the healthy operation of our bodies and it hurts the body and it dishonors the mind. The mind is not satisfied with the body. The mind is not satisfied and the body's not satisfied because sin always leads to death. So the same is true in our relationship with Christ. As we pursue sin, we dissatisfy the mind, Christ, the head, and we, the body, are hurt. So we suffer and Christ doesn't get glory. We don't get joy and he doesn't get satisfaction in those activities. So the purpose of Jesus being sovereign, the sovereign mind over the church, 
is to cause the church to operate in a way that ultimately achieves the Lord's sovereign will because in his sovereign will is his greatest glory. Think about it like this. Jesus has to assure the absolute uh, uh, certainty of his greatest glory. He has to get the greatest glory possible. And in order to secure the greatest glory possible, he can't leave it in our hands because we will not pursue the greatest glory possible. So there's this idea of the best of all possible worlds, meaning he is sovereign over all activity and all of creation at all times in order to maneuver all realities, even the realities that we experience as our will, into a manner that leads him to getting the greatest glory possible. So, so if you think about it in like, kind of like a sci-fi, I'm gonna take in a little sci-fi journey here just for a second. Like when I watch those movies, and especially like the, uh, oh, um, Marvel Universe movies, which I love, uh, and, and there's the one, the last two ma major movies, uh, Infinity War and, and Endgame, where they like play with this idea of multiple universes and multiple, uh, like the multiverse, like once they go, they go back in time and they create another timeline, now there's two timelines and there's an infinite number of timelines existing. Now we look at them and we go, that's silly and bananas, it's not real. Well, the reality is in, in one sense it is real in the sense that all possible universes that could exist all possible outcomes, every word that would create an, you know, if I chose this word instead of that word, it could lead to an entirely different universe, an entirely different outcome for the end of time, right? So, you know, philosophers talk about the butterfly effect. One little change here has a ripple effect that affects the, the rest of the world because it exponentially grows out. So what I'm telling you is that Though for us, all these multiverses and multiple universes and uh, possibilities, they don't exist for us. They're not out there. It's not like we can go back in time and create a multiple, you know, whatever. That's all sci-fi. But there's some truth in it that God is very capable and easily manages in his mind all possible universes. Every possibility for how things could be today, will be tomorrow, or could have been in the past, he knows them all. And they're infinite. There is no end to the number of possibilities. And he knows them all. And his desire is to get the greatest glory. And only one of those universes, only one of those realities that comes true is the one that gives him the greatest, highest degree of glory in the end. And he will assure us and assure himself that glory because he's worth it and he knows his value and he knows his worth and he will cause, he will have that authority, he gives his son Jesus the authority over the body to cause that glory, which is why in Ezekiel 36, 27, he says, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to obey because that cause of obedience assures his glory. If we're left on our own, we're going to pursue sin. So what this reveals is that there is no separation between the mind and the body. The health 
of the body honors the mind. Well, the body is satisfied in the health that the mind has caused the body to pursue, meaning both mind and body get joy. So just think about your body. All of it's connected. There's no separation, right? I mean, we, you could say, well, there's definitely separation because my arm stops at my shoulder, so my arm isn't connected to my torso, it's connected to my shoulder. My arm's not connected to my leg. True, but it's all a unit, right? My arm's connected to my shoulder, my shoulder to my torso, my torso to my hips, and my hips to my leg, and they all operate together. Just as I stand here and preach to you and I use my arms, my shoulders, and my torso, and my hips, and my legs are moving all in unison to create for you one mental image of a movement that I'm making. We see this ultimately like magnified in athletics. Like you ever watch, you ever watch gymnastics? Oh my, the things those people can do, <laughs> right? When I watch those men, those gymnasts, and they get on those uh, rings and they hold themselves up with their arms straight out to their sides and they just hold their entire body out and what do you see? Just rippling muscles. The amount of strength and coordination and function of the body that it has to have to do that just magnifies the power of the human body and the connectivity of the entirety of the body. It is impossible to hold yourself up like that without, strong, without a strong core, without strong abs and strong lower back muscles. Have you ever tried to do a, a, a sit-up? I mean, not a sit-up. Um, actually, not, not even a push-up. What I mean is planks. Have you guys ever done planks? Okay. Where you, you know, you're on, it's, it's like a sit-up, but you're on your elbows. You just hold yourself in this planking position. What starts to happen after about, I don't know, 12 seconds? <laughs> you start shaking, don't you? You start, your whole body starts shaking. I can't even do it for like 30 seconds. I'm like, ah! And, and so why are you shaking? Because your core is weak. That's why, okay? Little uh, fitness tip for you. Strengthen the core, all right? And you're shaking because your core is weak and your entire body is suffering the consequences of a weak abdomen, right? And so all you, you can see just how in athletics and the way that our body functions, how all of it's connected and related to each other. You can't, it, it, your body can't function independently. The parts can't function independently from other parts. I mean, even the nerves and, and the, the central nervous system and, and, the, and all the blood vessels that work, there, it's all connected to each other. If you sever a nerve, you, you sever your spine, your legs aren't going to work. You can't, your leg is, is, is dependent on the function of your spine. So the whole body's connected. The relationship between the body is, is united. So though they are distinct from each other, because my hand doesn't look like my nose and my elbow doesn't look like my stomach, right? Like they're distinct parts that have different functions and operations, but they're all related and united and it's one body. That is unity and that is the unified nature of the body. Think about it like this. I want you to answer this question in your head, okay? So answer it in your mind Give it a real answer. Who are you? Who are you? Some of you are thinking a little too hard. <laughs> because I think some of you... Uh, how, now, how many of you answered with your name? 
Did you answer with your name? Yeah. <laughs> okay, a lot of us will say, oh, I'm Mark. And some of you are thinking, oh, no, 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 I, I know these. Every time I get asked a question in a sermon, it's a trick question. There's something deeper going on here. What is he really looking for? Who am I? Who am I? Oh, I am in Christ, right? Like coming up with this good answer, right? So who are you? Are you your name? Because I would say, well, that's, that's your name, but who are you? And then you would maybe describe what you do. Well, that's, that's your job. But who are you? Oh, I get it. I'm a follower of Christ. Well, that's your identity. But who are you? And the, the question becomes annoying. And, and, and it, I actually get this idea from, from a movie called Anger Management. I don't know if you guys have seen it. But he asked him this question. There's two characters, and he's in an anger management class. He asks him, who are you? And then he gets angry because the guy won't answer. His answer is never satisfying enough because he's like, tells him his name. He's like, no, I'm not asking what your name is. No, I don't, I don't care what you do. No, now you're telling me about your personality. Who are you? And, and what that reveals is that ultimately what, what they don't get to, the point they don't get to in that movie is a point that I do want to make. You are your name. You are your personality. You are the things that you do. You are, you are, by definition, the things that you don't do. And you are your body. All of it. You are your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your spiritual life, your body, everything about you. The things that you do, the things that you think, the way that you are, all of it is you. You are, that's what humanity is, you are the totality of everything about you. So if I showed you a picture of yourself and I said, is this you? You would say, yes, that's me. Why? Because you're seeing your body, your face, and you're recognizing that the body and the face and the picture is yours, but that picture is not actually you, right? It's just a combination of colors captured on a camera, held still forever, digitally or on paper, and we look at it, but it's not actually you. It's not you in the picture. You are standing there looking at the picture. But we identify that picture as us. Why? Because we identify with our bodies. We look at our bodies and say, that's who I am. So we do not say that we are only a mind and that our body is just a machine that serves the mind. We consider the entirety of our body, both physical and spiritual and mental and emotional, as all part of the entirety of who we are. Why? Because we are not in parts. We are a whole mind and body. This body right here, this, this is me. This, is my, this mind is, is also me. It's all connected. They're unique and distinct from each other, but they are not different. And all of it combines to make up what I call me. And that unity of the body is what makes the metaphor so awesome because it exemplifies the unity that the body of Christ shares with Jesus himself. That we are not separate from him, but that we are, as Ephesians says over and over, in him, in Christ. So the purpose of the metaphor serves as a, like a notification and a reminder that though we are simply the submissive parts of the mind of Christ, we are also in Christ, and eternally a part of him. I mean, notice that the head doesn't sit on a shelf telling the body what to do. It's not separated. It's connected. It's linked. You separate the head from the body, the body doesn't work. 
And also, you separate the head from the body, and what else doesn't work? The head. I'm very confident saying Jesus does not need us. But I don't like that idea because he made us. He made the church. To say he doesn't need us is actually an illogical question from the start. The question doesn't fit reality because, yes, he may not need us to be God, but he has made us his body, and therefore we are. So the question he, or the, the thought that he doesn't need us is irrelevant and a foolish question. Because since he has created us as his body, he does need us. Because he wills to need us. And if it were his will not to need us, then he wouldn't need us. So this metaphor shows us the beauty of the relationship between the head and the body and the connectivity and the unified nature of how we are in Christ and connected to Christ and can't be separated from Christ and we can't even have a will outside of the will of Christ. No matter how much we experience that will as our operation and our desires, all of it is the operation of the mind causing the body to behave in such a way that brings the body the most satisfaction and the mind the most glory. So what does this mean for us? Kind of like on a day-to-day, real-life basis. Or, or to answer the question that I proposed at the beginning, what does this body, his body, the church, need? What the body needs, because this is what your human body needs, is to operate properly. Because proper function of the body will satisfy the body the most, right? We all agree with that. How many of you want to get sick? Nobody. How many of you want to have a disease? How many of you want to break your leg? How many of you want a brain injury? How many of you want to get hurt? We don't desire that for our body. We want health. And that's clearer when any of you get sick or hurt and you come to me and you say, pray for me, I'm ill. Pray for me, I found out I have cancer. The doctor found a lump here. The doctor found this in my heart. The doctor found this problem in my body. Oh, I've got some sort of flu or virus, I'm, I'm sick, pray for me. We desire health, and so we literally pray for health because our bodies are made to be healthy, and we pursue health. No one's going to argue with that reality. And if the relationship, if the metaphor is true, then that means that the purpose of the, the, the body, the church, is to be healthy. So what is the most proper function of the body? What is the healthiest operation of the body to keep the body at its healthiest? Submission. When the body submits to the head, it will operate according to the mind. The problem with the human body is our minds are not perfect. So we tell our bodies to do stupid things, right? We tell our bodies, hey, I'm kind of in the mood for that sin. 
I'm going to push the, the Lord in the back of my mind. We all know what it feels like. We all know this thought, this process, this feeling. We've all been there at some point. We just push that, that voice of the Lord to the back of our mind and use our body to pursue sin. Or sometimes we pursue sin unknowingly, or you know, not really knowing that it's sin, or, or we blurt out emotionally without thinking and we say sinful things. We can cause our, our minds are imperfect, so it, creates our, it causes our bodies to do imperfect things. The beauty of the metaphor is that the head of the church, the mind of the church, the leader of the church, the shepherd of the church, the authority of the church, Jesus, is perfect. And so when the body submits to the will of the mind of Christ, it will pursue perfection. It will do what is right. It will achieve the will of the mind of or the head, the authority, Christ, and it will do righteousness. It will do holiness. You will do holiness. You will do righteousness. You will pursue perfection, just like Peter tells us to pursue in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Be perfect because God is perfect, and you think that's insane. No one can be perfect. Yet, yeah, well, we can pursue perfection when we submit our will to the will of the head to the will of the master. Well, how am I supposed to know what the master wants? How am I supposed to know what the mind wants me to do? Wouldn't it be awesome if you, like, I don't know, wrote down instructions for us? <laughs> Put it in a book? Preserved it for thousands of years? Validated it and verified it over multiple manuscripts over a time period that lasted forever? This is the most validated piece of historical writing that has ever existed. There is no other document, no other ancient document in the entire world that is more verified and validated by ancient manuscripts than the Bible. When people reject the Bible, first of all, Jesus says, they're rejecting me. That's really what's going on. But ultimately, they also have to reject the very science they claim is so important. Because archaeology is a science, and archaeology has given more evidence for the validity of the Bible than any other document in the history of the world. I've, I think I've preached this before, but I'm going to say it again. The second most validated source, or the second most validated and verified ancient document that we have in existence today is a, is, is a story written by Homer. It's called Homer's Iliad. It's incredibly famous. You can find it in any bookstore. It's one of the most famous stories or books ever written. Homer's Iliad has, um, oh, I'm trying to think of how many it has, like 250 uh, manuscripts that have been found over a series of thousands of years that validate that we, what we have today. If you went to Barnes and Nobles today and pulled that book off the shelf, you can trust by the verification of about 250 documents Ancient documents discovered that what you're reading is originally what Homer wrote thousands of years ago. Compare that, that's the second most validated document in the history of the world. The most validated document in the history of the world is the Bible. So compare Homer's 250, I have to double check that number, but it's something very low, to the Bible's 100,000 verified manuscripts discovered over time that in a, manuscripts that we find that are dated thousands of years apart from each other and say the exact same thing. 
so you guys have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls, when we found those, we were like, uh-oh, what if, what if these show a whole bunch of Bible verses that are totally different than the documents we found that we, you know, say we found a document in like zero, or like five AD, right? Well, now we found a document that was 2,000 years before that. If it says something different than what we have now, yikes, we've got a problem. And all the Red Sea Scrolls did was validate everything we have. And so I say that to give you a little bit of confidence, okay, to boost your faith. We don't believe this because of science. We believe it because the Holy Spirit has entered your heart and caused you to believe and given you the mind of Christ and faith in him and we trust his word. That's why you believe. That's not a good enough answer if you're talking to an unbeliever, but it's the right answer when I'm talking to a room full of believers. That is by faith we believe this. But I want to boost your faith with some evidence and that's why I give you that piece of evidence. But ultimately, you, the body, me, the body, our responsibility is to operate according to the will of the mind. And God was like, hey, I, I, I told you my will. Here is my will. Now, what I don't want to explore right now, and last week what I did is I talked a little bit about free will and what's free will and what's Bible says about free will. Actually, well, the Bible doesn't mention free will, but what the, how, how the Bible treats and handles this idea of our will and how free it is and how much it operates under the will of God, under, under the will of Christ. Okay? And, and I told you last week when we talked about that, that there's, I didn't have enough time to dive into that because with every piece of evidence I give you for the biblical perspective comes a plethora of questions. And if we address those questions, we're just not enough time. And so what I encouraged you with was hang in there. If you've got questions, ask those questions, think about those questions, discover those questions in the Word, search Scripture yourself, talk to me, and hang around. Stick around. We're in the Bible. We'll get there. God will reveal what He wants us to know when He wants us to know it as we go through the Bible expositionally, verse by verse. So you're not going to get all the answers you want every Sunday. It's just not possible. Unless you guys want to add an hour. It's up to you. No, I won't do that to you. But really, if you wanted to, we could study further, right? And so we, we hang around and come back next week and then the next week and then the next week to see God day by day, verse by verse, unfold his truths piece, piece by piece at a time. And that requires your endurance throughout an entire week with questions. And so I'm going to do it to you again. I'm going to present to you an idea that is going to create only questions. I'm going to give you very little answer. But I, I, what I'm doing is I'm preparing you. I'm dropping seeds in your theological buckets. And then over the course of months and years, I'm going to put soil into that bucket. Sermon after sermon after sermon. Just put a little bit of Soil, you know, one sermon I might throw in some miracle grow. One day I might water it, okay? And, and so the idea then is that over a long period of time, that seed will take root and grow. What I don't want you to do is to take that seed out of your bucket and go, ah, out of my bucket, I don't like it. 
I reject it immediately because I don't understand it or because it's not what I've been taught for the last 40 years of my life and that's what I've believed this for 40 years and I've got Bible verses to prove it. The truth will be revealed, right? So let the seed plant. Let the seed sit in your bucket. Let me put soil in. Let me water it. Let us learn. And whatever the truth is will come out of that soil. So I'm asking you to trust me. I'm trying to shepherd you. You don't get all the answers today. It's just life, right? It's like when my kids, I tell my kids, hey, go do this. And they go, why? And I go, because I said so. Now, I'm not telling you that, but they don't always get the answers they want right away. And so I'm asking you to trust me. When we talk about the will of God, so I'm going to do this, okay, I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a seed in your bucket. You're going to want to take that seed and go, that doesn't make sense. Throw it away. Don't do it. Listen. We talk about the will of God. We talk about the mind causing the body to operate according to his will. There's this something we have to understand about the will of God. I've heard people my whole life say, what's God's will? What's God's will? What's God's will? What do we mean by what's God's will? What are we really asking? You know what we're asking? What is God going to do tomorrow? What does he want me to do today because he has a plan for tomorrow. So I want to know, God, we always ask this, show me what tomorrow is. That's really what we're asking. Show me what tomorrow is. Show me what your will for me is. Is your will that I go to this college or that college? Is your will that I take this job or that job? Is it your will that I go down this road or that road? Show me your will, meaning show me what you want me to do. Here's the thing about God's will. He has two of them. Two wills. He has what we call a will of decree. That's a sovereign will that is impenetrable by humans. And he also has what we call a moral will or a will of, uh, a will of command. Okay? So these two wills operate in unison and sometimes independently in some ways. Though his will of command, or what we would call his moral will, is his desire. This is where we find verses in the Bible that say things like, he does not wish that anybody perish. Well, that can't be his sovereign will, because people do perish. So it has to be his moral will, or his will of desire. And what he's revealing is, God, who loves his creation, wants everybody, desires that everybody be saved. Do you desire that all of your children get saved? Yeah, you do. And God loves you and everyone else way more than you love your own children. So imagine how, his, how deep his desire is for everyone to know him. That's his heart. That's the heart of God. Now this idea of two wills is so significant to understanding our will. Because then we have this sovereign will, this will that is unbreakable, unshakable, and fixed. Jesus said in the garden, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Oh, but not my will, your will be done. Mm -hmm. 
Who? Who could have stopped Jesus from getting murdered on a cross? Nobody. Not even Jesus could have stopped his death on the cross. Why? Because it was the Father's will. And what Peter reveals in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is you Jews, he's talking to Jews, have put this man to death by the definite, these are the words from the Bible, definite plan of God. That is God's sovereign will, unchangeable will. No one could have stopped it. His sovereign will was that the son die. So we see God operating in two wills throughout the Bible. Is it going to snow tomorrow? Do we have control over it snowing tomorrow? No. It's God's sovereign will. You can't fix it. You can't change it. You can't redirect it. But then we have this will of God that he expresses to us in the Bible. You look at things like 1 Thessalonians. Where's 1 Thessalonians? Chapter 4, for this is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's one of the commands. And he says, it's my will. That's his will. That's his desire for you. That's his will of command. God, the Bible is filled with all kinds of expressions of God's will or his desire for you that you can break, that you can disobey because it's his desire for you and he gives you that command and in your will, you choose not to do it. However, that will of command that he tells you to do, that you can disobey, that you can break, that will of his and, and will of yours sits under a larger, greater will, which is his sovereign will that is unshakable and fixed. So even your disobedience falls under his sovereign will. All of your acts, all of his commands fit inside of the larger will, which is his sovereign will. Now there's way more to explore there. And again, like I said, seed in the bucket, tons of questions. Maybe you're looking at it going, that doesn't make sense logically. We can work through it over time. I don't have time to continue down that line of thinking. But what I want you to see is that these two wills are so important to understanding our will as the body. Because the mind says, you're going to do exactly what I say. And we do. Whether good or bad. And that brings up a lot more questions. So, it, this reality of two wills, we see it operate even in your own life. The way you parent your children, right? When your child disobeys, do you desire is it your passion and your heart's joy to spank your child? Now, I, I don't know any good parents who like to spank their kids. It's the hardest thing to do, to sit down with your child and tell them what you've done is wrong and I'm not going to punish you, but I have to discipline you. And this discipline is going to come with some sort of hardship that I'm going to enforce on you. I don't want to do this child, but I have to do this because the Lord commands me to do this for your righteousness. And this discipline is going to push out sinfulness and foolishness and wickedness, and this discipline is going to nurture righteousness. I get this from Hebrews chapter 12. But I don't want to do it. I have to do it. So 
I'm not sovereign like God is, but my quote-unquote sovereign will is you're going to be disciplined. But my will of desire is I don't want to. And what submits to what? The will of desire submits to your will of decree. Your desire is I don't want to spank my kid, but your will of decree is they must be spanked. I use spanking, whatever, some sort of discipline. That is how the will of God operates. That his will of desire submits to his sovereign will. And our role in that is that we submit to his will of desire. And we read his Bible, understand what it says, and do it. That's submission. Easier said than done. But there's no way you'll ever do it unless you know it. I once talked to a kid, he's a teenager, he went, graduated high school, went to college, and he goes, and one of his friends comes back to me and says, uh, that guy is just out getting drunk every night in college. This kid who claims to be a believer. So I go to his college. I drive like two hours to his college just to meet with him. I go, dude, what are you doing? He goes, I don't know, I'm just partying, I guess. I don't know. I'm like, what? You know that's sin, right? He goes, what's sin? I go, getting drunk is sin. <laughs> like, you know this, right? And he's like, it is? I'm like, what do you mean? It is. I've, I, I know you were there when I talked about it in youth group like 20 times. So I know you heard this. He had no idea that getting drunk was a sin. That the, I said, the Bible isn't even unclear about it. Very, very explicitly clear that drunkenness is sin. And literally says like, do not get drunk. And he's like, oh, I should stop. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I'm here. So sometimes we just do foolish things because we just don't even know the Bible's telling us not to do them. Some of those things you're thinking are obvious, but there's so many subtle commands in the Bible that reveal our sin and fix the way we behave. Our role in the body is to submit. And here's the thing. If you submit, if you submit, and you submit, and you submit, and and, and 98% of us submit, and 2% of us don't, you ever try to walk without a big toe? How much of your body is your big toe? Probably about 2%, maybe. You ever try to walk without a big toe? It feels like you're drunk. Okay, it's like really hard to balance. Your big toe is significant to your balance. It's just little. You ever try to steer a ship without an udder, rudder? Whatever. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Let's just be glad I didn't say something worse, all right? (laughs) It's rudder, right? (laughs) You ever try to steer a ship without a rudder? Tiny little thing. Directs an massive ship. All of us need to be in, 100%. 2% gets out of whack, that means the whole body's going to suffer. We all need to be all in God's word. Submit to his word and obey. Let's pray. Father, we trust you, we love you, we thank you. You're so good to us. And we really don't know how to submit the way we're supposed to. A lot of us do it well. A lot of us maybe don't. A lot of us are somewhere in between. But whatever that next step for each of us is in submission, what is that thing 
that we need to learn to submit in. And I pray that whatever that is, you would give us that and cause us to trust you and to obey your word. Help us to open your word daily, to dive in and to enjoy you, to see you in it, to discover you in it, to see what you're like, to learn about you, to know you better, to develop a, a greater passion and, and an earnest desire to pursue you. Like, give us that. And then, and then in that growth, create in us a submissiveness to your commands where we will be satisfied in you. Pray this in Jesus' name.